Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. In, in any long-term relationship, uh, this often happens. Um, and, and so my... my um, my kids and my wife put up with this often. If we're with a new so people that I'm not often with, or I'm, I'm with a group of people that, um, you know, are, are new to me, they listen to my stories. Um, and they've already, you know, they all, they all heard the story, right? They, they, they'll say, oh, here we go. This is the, here goes the bus story, or here goes the whatever. Um, and, and so uh, our church and I are, we're in a long-term relationship. And so some of you have heard some of the stories that I, that I share, but um, I share them intentionally because sometimes uh, we're with people who have not heard them. Uh, and so I, I need to get us all on the same page. So I'm going to share a couple, couple of things about myself that some of you have heard before, but bear with me because some of you have not. So um, uh, I've shared with I've shared with many of you that from from a pretty, pretty young age um, I was pursuing Christ um, pretty aggressively. Um, not for His sake, not for the sake of Christ, but but because I was using self righteousness as a tool for my self worth. Um, is it maybe that means I wasn't pursuing Christ at all? <laughs> maybe maybe that just you know just an idea of Him that I, I cooked up in my mind um, so that I could build an ego on. Uh, but so from a pretty young age, I've been doing that. Uh, and so I had a lot of spiritual disciplines that, that, that I practiced, um, even at a, at a young age, you know, I was willing to, to get up in front of people and talk about Jesus and adults love that. Um, they, you know, they got super into that. And, and so I got lots of praise before that. And all that led to this growing pride in me, um, vicious growing pride. Um, and I, I thought I was the solution to all of all the problems in the world. Um, and God sent me to save you guys. So, uh, by the time I was in high school, uh, you know, I, I was really, I, I, you know, Martina always thinks this is so funny. I, I was really, I, I thought I was very close to being sinless. Um, and I knew logically that couldn't be true. Um, but I was close, um, and certainly closer than any of the people around me. Um, because I was, super intentional and very spiritual. Um, and I certainly would have never said that out loud because that would have been a sin. Um, and I didn't sin. So <laughs> throughout high school, um, God would put me in several situations where he was trying to reveal to me what I was like. Um, and I, was, I wasn't paying attention, but I want to share a couple of those with you. So um, at that time, I had all kinds of boundaries um, for interacting with people of the opposite sex. Um, and there, there are things that I could, there were things I could talk about, rules I could list out um, and, and say, you know, this is what good Christians do. Um, and, and I would keep, keep to those pretty strongly. And I couldn't imagine myself crossing any of those boundaries um, until, until one night, one day, um, my, my sister had a young lady spend the night at our house. And that girl came on to me um, really strong. And I found myself crossing all these boundaries that I, that I had created for myself. Um, and that didn't wake me up to what I was like. At the high school I attended, uh, there was a wing for special needs people. 
And um, often those kids would want to interact with the rest of us in the general population. Um, but if you, the general, if those of you in the general population interacted with the special needs kids, you would get made fun of mercilessly. Um, so, you know, it kind of created this, this unspoken feeling in yourself that, you know, oh, I don't, I don't want to interact with them. So one day I'm going to class and walking ahead of me is this, this, this special needs girl. Um, and she has, a, she's having, she has trouble walking and she falls hard. Her glasses slide across the, across the, floor, across the floor. And in order to avoid um, being seen with her or interacting with her and getting made fun of, I stepped right over her and I went to class. Um, yeah. I still didn't pick up on what I was like. When I get to college, um, I'm starting to realize, you know, that you, sometimes when you get to college, you're kind of coming into yourself. You're realizing, oh, these are the talents I have. This is what I'm good at. So I, that was kind of happening to me. I was realizing that I was an extrovert. I could talk on stage. I was social. I could talk to anyone. So what I started to do was I used those gifts and personality traits to manipulate myself into positions where I could get attention and I could be praised for who I was. Um, I could get awards for, for being so selfless and serving. Uh, and it worked. It, it worked. It was, it was good. Here's a, it, it come to you. I want you to think about this. When I was put in certain situations, in certain positions, it turns out that I wasn't quite the person that I had imagined myself to be. Now, as long as, as, long as I could stay in this world that I you know, certainly created in my mind or this, this world that I, that I was living in, then I could do all the things right. But when God let me be in these certain positions and situations, I found myself... I found myself doing things I, I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't have expected. And the disturbing thing is that even with doing all those things I just described to you and more, you know, I didn't talk about, um, I still didn't realize what I was like. Still didn't realize what I was like. So today I'm going to be continuing this series called Openness Unhindered. It's based on a book by Rosaria Butterfield. Um, Rosaria is a former Syracuse University um, professor, super smart. Uh, she's, written a, she's written this book about finding our, our true identities through union with Christ. And so last week, I tried to answer the question, who am I? And if you paid attention, if you were, if you're listening to what I said, I didn't really answer the question very directly. I didn't say, here, this is who you are. But I, I, said, I said, this is what you've got to do. Um, I, I want you to do this. I want you, we've got to begin with Christ and his cross to find out who we are. And God tells us that his idea for who we are um, was, in, it was just this plan that was long before my, any of my plans began, um, long, long, long before they began, um, before, before the foundations of the world. So last week we said that God's plan came along, since his plan came along before ours, long time before ours, we should submit to it. We should say, okay, your plan was before mine. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to go along with your plan instead of going with my plan. Um, and uh, I, what I would love for you to do, what I would love for you to do is to discover this, to be able to articulate your answer to, to yourself and to someone else. This is who I am. And so I, I, didn't tell you, I didn't tell you how to answer it, 
Um, I didn't say this is what you should say, but I wanted you to think for yourself. And so one of the things I asked us to do is to look at Luke um, 22, 39 through, to, through Luke 24, 8. And this is, right. if you don't know, this is a story from Jesus' arrest to Jesus' resurrection. Um, and what I, when you read that, what I wanted you to do is I wanted you to think of, imagine that Christ was doing this for you alone. Um, I wanted you to imagine that every step he took, every sacrifice he made was, was for you specifically, not the world you. Um, I've shared with many of you guys before um, that, that uh, my mom, my mom was a single mom and she made tons of sacrifices for us in all kinds of different ways, but specific, some specific sacrifices that she made. Um, single mom, an uh, elementary school teacher. Uh, on a teacher's salary, she sent my brother and I to private school, and then she sent, sent me to a private college. She paid for it all. She paid for it all. Um, and when, I, when it was happening, you know, I didn't realize I didn't realize what it was. But now looking back on it, as I look back on the things that she was doing, the sacrifices she was making, and all the things that she was giving so that I, you know, my brother and I could, could have that experience, it says something. It speaks to me about who she thinks I am. Uh, it says something to me about what her, what she, what her, she thinks of my value is, um, and the sacrifices that she made. This says, "This is how important you are to me." That is what Christ wants you to take from Luke 22, 39 through Luke 24, 8. He wants you to look back on what happened and say, oh, that's who I am. So even if, even if you didn't have mom like I had or parents who, who, who communicated that to you, he wants you to look back at this and say, okay, now I get it. Now I can, I can draw on, this is, this is who I am. This is who I am. You are valuable, and that's what I'm saying. That's who you are. Um, so, man, if you haven't done that, if you haven't read this, I would you know, just love for you to do it. You could probably do it in like 15 minutes. Um, I'd love for you to do that. I'd love for you to do that. This week, I want to answer the question, what am I like? Um, what am I like? So, um, in the first message in this series, uh, we talked about Adam and Eve and, and how, uh, <clears throat> how through them, um, sin entered the world and death came because of sin and, and, and how that, you know, that sin made all of us, all of us guilty. Um, it says in the, in the Bible, it says it like this. It says, so one man's guilt, one man's sin brought guilt to all the people. And many people were made sinners because one man did not obey. One man's sin brought guilt to all people, and many people were made sinners because one man did not obey. And we said, typically, this isn't how we think of sin. Your sins are your sins, and my sins are my sins. And I don't get, I don't get consequences um, for, your, you know, for the sins that you've done, and vice versa. Um, and your sins don't have a great impact on me, and my sins don't have a great impact on you. And certainly, Adam and Eve thought this. Um, they, they thought, you know, who's it going to hurt? Who's it going to hurt if we don't obey? Well, what will what, be the big deal? Um, and... Clearly, this verse teaches that Adam's sin brought guilt to all of us, and we were all masons because of his decision. And here's why. Here's why. Here's why. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Sin is a crime. Sin is, sin is treason. It's a treasonous act. But sin is also a disease. Sin is a crime, but it's 
also a disease. It's, it's, it's alive. And that, that kind of living sin, the, 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 sin, the kind of sin that's alive, um, it came alive when Adam and Eve made that first decision. When they, when they, when they made that decision to say, I'm, I'm not going to do what God says. They gave birth to sin um, and to this living destructive force that they pass on uh, to their offspring like, like skin color or hair color. Um, that kind of sin, I don't, we don't think about. We think about sin like, you, oh, you did a sin and you did this wrong thing. But this sin is living alive in a different way. So the first book of the Bible is Genesis. Um, and it describes, uh, it describes sin in a way that we're not used to. Um, and not only as something that we do, but as something that is alive, living, um, living in us. So uh, there's a situation where Adam's, Adam's, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain um, and Abel, uh, both give offerings to the Lord. And when they do this, Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's offering is not accepted. And it's not super clear why Bible nerds have been thinking about this forever. Why didn't Cain's, you know, Cain's offering get accepted? Um, and I, I think that all of us would do well when we read this to say, I, we don't know. Um, we, we don't know exactly why. Um, and I, I would say this, I would say this about that. Um, it's not the main point of what's happening. Um, if you trust God, if you trust God, you know that he has, he has his reasons for doing everything that he does. So, and that's usually what I do. I say, I, I just chalk it up to God has his reasons and he doesn't accept Cain's offering. But the, the, the point, when you get into the point of what, what's being said there, when he doesn't accept Cain's offering, Cain is viciously angry. <laughs> and you can see it. You can see it all over him. Um, I don't know if you've ever been interacted with somebody who's super angry and they're not telling you, but you look at him and you... You know, you know, this, this is what's happening to Cain. And so it's at that point that God steps in. He, and he says this, he says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why do you look annoyed? If you do well, and this is what do well means, believing me and doing what's acceptable and, ple- and pleasing to me, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, this is what it means to not do well, ignore my instruction. And then listen to this. Sin crouches at your door. Its desire is for you to overpower you, but you must master it. So I think of sin as something that we do, something we have control of, but here it sounds like somebody that I'm about to get in a fight with. Um, it, it, it crouches and desires. Uh, it, it, these, verses was, these verses were originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for desire here, um, it doesn't appear in the Bible very many times. But when it does, it's often talking about spouses. It's talking about a spouse desires a spouse. And, and usually it has this, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the places that it's found in is in the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. And so it's usually very visceral, passionate, it, it, something natural, it's something stimulating. I'm, it's, sin is alive and it desires you like that. Sin is, sin is alive and it desires you like that. And, I, and, I, and I, want you to, I want you to pair this sin desiring you like that and then sin being deadly. 
sin being a killer. So Ted Bundy um, was a serial killer in the 1970s. Uh, he was said to be handsome, charismatic. Uh, often women would fall for him. And he would begin slow and lure his victims into his arms. Sin is like that. Like, like, a, kind of, like a kind of serial killer that knows my name and knows where I live and lurks at my door and seeks me out and it knows just what to do to get, to get me to come outside. And that thing is living in me. That's the thing that's living in me. The picture that the picture you know, I've shared of a serial killer who knows my address and has desire, who has desire to have me is, is, is far, far more scary than the picture of sin that I normally have in my head. Like the picture of sin that I have in my head is this like cute list of rules that God says you can't do and this is bad and don't do these things because, you know, if you do them, then, then I, shame on you and you're going to be grounded. Um, and, and, and if I don't do them, it's honestly no big deal. There's no, there's, you know, it's kind of like, oops, I'm sorry, God, but um, it's, it's just no big deal. It's not, it's no, but Paul, an early church leader, talks about sin like it's, it's alive, and it's not just something that's alive. It's, it's, it's not just something that we've done, but it's a serial killer. It's somebody that's alive and evil and terrifying that lurks and seeks and waits at your door. And the, the kind of thing that we're like, that if actually it was really happening in real life, we would, we would take precautions. We would be scared. We would call our friends. We would call the police. We would be ready to fight. We, if, that, if that's lurking, desire, you know it knows your address. It's seeking you. Paul says it like this. He says, the law was the only way that I could learn what sin means. I would have never known that it was wrong to want something that is not mine to covet. But the law said, you must not want what belongs to someone else. And sin found a way to use that command and make me want all the things that weren't mine. So sin came to me because of the command. But without the law, sin has no power. Before I knew the law, I was alive. But when I heard the law's command, sin began to live, and I died spiritually. The command, that was, the command was meant to, to bring life, but for me, it brought death. Sin found a way to fool me by using the command to make me die. The law says that coveting, um, that coveting or wanting something that belongs to someone else is wrong. So be careful, don't do that, it's dangerous. And then the serial killer comes along and uses that good thing to say, well, did God really say that? Did God really say coveting's wrong? And who's it gonna hurt if, if you just want something that somebody else has? Who's it gonna hurt? And sin comes alive, and when it does, I, I died, it says. Sin fooled me, it murdered me. And then it says, it was sin that killed me by using something good. Now we can see how terrible and evil sin really is. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am merely a human. And I've been sold as a slave to sin. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. This personified sin has power. 
Um, and it's out to get me. Um, and, e- and even worse, and even worse, it's not just out to get me. It's living in me. So I started out with these stories about my past to illustrate that idea. That even, even when I think I'm on my very, very best behavior, sin's at my door lurking. I mean, and honestly, honestly, and those of you guys who know me, honestly, I could have used, I could have used stories that uh, were more recent, things I've done, you know, this morning. <laughs> stories from my past feel safer though, right? That used to be, it used to be what I did. Even when I'm good, when I'm being good, I can't help but cross over into thinking, look how good I'm being. I'm so much better than others. And that, we all know that killing someone is evil or being a serial killer, that's evil. And we're all, we're all ready to jump up and say that. Self-righteousness does not seem as, that, that doesn't seem evil. It doesn't seem dangerous. It doesn't, it's just, it's just you know, it's just, it's just something that we don't like. That self-righteousness is deadly, and it leads me to being unprepared for other sins that are lurking at my door, that the sin's going to unleash on me, a lack of compassion and manipulation and being self-seeking and being cruel. Um, and, and I'm merely a human soul as a slave to a serial killer, and the killer that lives in me. And, and sin is a serial killer that's living in me and hurting the people that I love most, and I, and I hate him. And I hate that part of me, and I hate that there is that there that there is good in me that want that wants to get out, that I want to do that, and I can't carry it out. I cannot do it. I cannot do it very long, and, and I, I cannot be good without becoming a self righteous person, which is gross. And the person, the person that I want to be without having to be all that, I cannot be. So the solution. The solution is this. Here's this. First, you gotta admit this. This is what I'm like. And this is really hard. Um, this is really hard for us. And, and, and Chris was kind of kind of hinting at this, is this. Um, when we admit this is what we like, this is what I'm like, you know, it's easy to be like, okay, I'm just an awful person, and then you dwell and you wallow in that and stuff like that. And I don't need you to do that, but here's, here's what we need. For the cross, for the cross of Christ, for Jesus' crucifixion to make any sense, you have to start with this. This is what I'm like. And if, if you don't, the cross doesn't make any sense. Because when you read, when you go back and you read, the, when you read Luke and you see the ridiculousness of the crucifixion, when you come to the cross and say, yeah, I'm self-righteous, but it's not that big a deal. That does not make sense. It doesn't make sense because if your self-righteousness wasn't a big deal, Daryl, then this cross of Christ wouldn't have had, wouldn't have had to have happened. We could have just, you know, we could have did something small. We could, have, we, could, we could have just said, oh, just sign this and then you're forgiven. This is what I am like. This is what's most real about me. I've got a killer living 
in me. Sin lives in me like, 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 like cancer. Um, and sin is a crime. It's something that I do, but it's also alive. It's a disease that is passed down to me all the way from Adam, coming down to me thousands of years later. And, and to deny this, to, not, to deny this is like going to the doctor and saying, listen, you've got cancer. And for you to be like, no, I don't. No, I don't. It, it, to, to pretend that it doesn't exist and you're going to get better. To pretend that you're healthy all the while is killing you. So here's what we got to do. Kill it. Kill it. We must kill it. This is who I am and it must die, we must kill it. Like cancer. Like when your doctor says to you, you've got cancer, and you say, what do we do? He says, kill it. That's what we do. That's what we do. We kill it. Crucify it, kill it like cancer, like, like chemotherapy. Like when we go in there, some of you guys, chemotherapy kills cancer cells. And in some cases, the treatment, the treatment can destroy cancer completely to the point where cancer's not in your body anymore. Kill it. Kill it. And it's, stuff that's, it's not something I can do, you know, do by myself. It's, it's not like, you know, I have a cold or a sinus infection where it's going to get better. I can sleep it off. I can't will myself into doing it. Our remedies for our sin are like taking Tylenol to get rid of cancer. Using essential oils to help with leukemia. Sin is deeper and stronger and far more defining than something that that can be taken away like that. It's got to be killed. And if I don't kill it, it will dominate me. And that kind of thinking is drastically different than thinking, oh, I I need to, I just need to get better. I need to be more disciplined. That is completely different than saying, I have to kill this. So my next message I want to talk about what that looks like. I want to talk about what it looks like for us to kill sin, to to kill the killer living in each of us that lurks in the shadows, that desires to have us. Let me say this. Let me say this. So first, let me say, um, my friend Sam's going to be speaking next week. And then when I get back, I'm going to speak to this. I'm going to speak to this. Now, let me say this. I was once in a class in college, and um, in, the, in the class, we talked a lot about morality, making moral decisions. And at that time, again, super self-righteous, very spiritual, all this kind of business, before I had a family, We're talking about the idea of whether or not you should kill someone ever 
There's any context where you can kill someone and where it's right to kill someone. And of course, I said no because it's very spiritual. Now that I'm married and I have a family, hmm, my thinking is so much different. So much different. Where before I was like, you can't kill anyone. It's so, you know. And, and now I think of someone, you know, coming to my house, lurking outside my door, ready to kill my family. And I'm like, I will burn the world down to kill you, to stop you from hurting my family. Sin is in you and in me, lurking at our doors, desiring us. And when we don't kill it, it will hurt your families. It will hurt the people you love. You need, I need to make a decision. This is where it begins. This is, this is where we're ending today. This is what I want you to do. You got a decision to make. Decide if you believe that's what you're like. Start, you, know, you start with that. Is that what I'm like? Maybe you, maybe you think that's not what you're like. You're like, no, Daryl, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not bad. Okay. That's your decision. You need to decide if that's what you're really like. Do you really have a serial killer living inside you? Someone that's more similar to cancer than a sinus infection um, that will kill you if left alone. You need to decide if you believe that. If you're willing to believe that, if you're, and maybe you, don't, maybe you don't believe it in your heart, but maybe you're willing to trust what the Bible says about what we're like. If you're willing to believe that, then are you willing to kill it? Are you willing to kill it? So my track record is that when, um, when I want to do good, sin is right there with me, compelling me to do what I don't want to do. And if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it's no longer, longer me is doing it, but sin living in, the killer living in me. So am I willing to kill it? Am I willing to kill it? The diagnosis has been given, and we have to decide if we're willing to accept the treatment. So that's your decision for today. So as we take communion together, um, know that the way that all of us, all, you know, there's, all of this fits into the gospel, all of this fits into the gospel, the story of this, Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Jesus was crucified for our acts of sin, right? He paid the consequences for our acts of sin that, you know, that we, we don't have to pay by living you know, a sinless life um, that we can't live. Jesus did that. He paid for what we do by living an incredibly challenging, sinless life. And we, we understate that so much. Like we, we undersell that so much. Living a, Jesus came and lived a sinless life. Yep. We understate that. We, we don't. I want us to meditate on that before, before I end and just think of, think of it this way. So in baseball, there's, a, there's an achievement called the no-hitter. 
Um, those of you guys who watch baseball, or you're into baseball, you know, you know, a no hitter is basically a baseball game um, in which a team is not able to record a single hit. So a pitcher, um, the pitcher who, who prevents the opposing team from achieving a single hit, that's said to be, you know, he said he's thrown, he's thrown a no hitter. He's thrown a no hitter. So typically that means the pitcher will stay in the whole game, nine innings, and he, you know, he'll keep every player of the opposing team from recording a single hit. So as rare as that is, you know, those, that's super rare. It's, you know, so there's only been like a little bit more than 300 no hitters in professional baseball. And they've been you know, recording professional baseball for like 150 years. So think about that. 300 no hitters in 150 years. I mean, and, and how many, the game, how many games that, that professional baseball teams play? 300 out of all those games. It's incredible. It's, it's not very many. That being said, what do you think about this? As rare as no hitters are, there's something called the perfect game. And it's a no-hitter where um, no one reaches first base. No one reaches first base. So the pitcher can't walk anybody. He can't hit anyone. Um, the, the, no, no balls, no hits, no nothing. Nothing. The whole game, nine innings. It, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. If you know anything about, anything, anything about baseball, you, that, that's impossible. It's only happened 20 times. In recorded, in recorded baseball history, 20 times. Last one was in 2012. Last one in 2012. It's an incredible feat. It's, just, it's, it's, it's an incredible, impossible feat. And if you've ever watched a baseball game where, you see, where you've seen a no-hitter start to get going, the first, first inning, you know, gets out. No, second inning gets out. The third and the fourth inning is when it's, it's just the pressure starts to crash down on the pitchers. And sometimes, sometimes if, you, if you're watching a game like this, they'll show the pitchers while the, while the, opposing, team, while the opposing team is pitching and they're out in the outfield, they'll show the pitchers and they, they'll have like a towel over their head. They'll be sitting alone. You, you, you look on their faces, they're walking out there. This is an incredible amount of pressure to continue this, no, keep it going. Keep it going. So when you get to the fifth, the sixth, the seventh inning, so imagine, imagine, imagine you're, you're a pitcher and you've got a perfect game going in the fourth, the fourth inning, the fifth inning. The incredible amount of pressure to keep that going is, it's, it's, un, we just, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about. I want you to think about this. Next time that you're talking about Jesus living a sinless life, I want you to think about this. Jesus, I need you to go down there and I need you to save those people. And here's the thing. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect. And if you're not, And Jesus shows up with all the pressure on him. And you know, I mean, if, if, if you told me, say, Daryl, listen, you've got to live sinless for the rest of the day. I'm not sure I could do it. But what I would do, here's what I would do. I'd, get in my, I'd go into my bedroom. I'd say, listen, don't nobody come to me. Don't nobody bother me. And maybe, hopefully, I just spend the rest of the day reading the Bible or something. Like, maybe I could do it. 
Maybe I could do it. Jesus attacked viciously, ridiculously, dealing with the most ridiculous kinds of people ever. Sinless, perfect, under the most ridiculous amount of pressure. And you can imagine, you know, when he gets that last three years, when he starts his ministry, he knows it's about to get real kind of dirty now. The pressure's on to finish this thing upright. To finish this thing upright. His sinless life, his death, his resurrection are the template for us. And, and he decided to kill sin. I'm going to come down there and I'm going to kill sin. And since he didn't have any sin of his own to kill, he killed your sin and he killed mine. And, and now you have to make the decision to kill sin the same way. You have to make the decision to do the same. And, and don't worry about how yet. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later. But will you do it? Will you do it? Will you make the decision to take communion together today? Let's, so let's, let's pray together. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we just, uh, every day, every day of every, every, every day of our lives, we could, we could discover something new about you. If we just, we just invested time in, in meditating on what you're like, what it was like, what it was like for Jesus to be here, what it was like before the foundations of the world to make the decision for us to have the, these, these plans for our lives, what it's like to have, have those decisions made and paid for, and then to have us reject your plans for our lives. There's infinite ways that we can meditate on what it's like to be you and to give your life and just all kinds of different directions. I pray for you to help us to accept who you are and what you're like, who we are and what we're like. When we do that, you make beautiful things out of us. You turn us into something that we cannot imagine. But it begins with us admitting what we're like and being willing to kill the killer in each of us. I pray that as we take communion, as we, we think of your, your life, your death, and your resurrection right now, that would inspire us, drive us, to say, I will kill it in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.